Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimpera, host of the Public Policy Channel. And today I am pleased to welcome Robert Frank, who is the author of Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work from Princeton University Press. Robert, welcome. Thank you, Stephen, for having me on. Uh, My pleasure. So before we talk about the book, I wonder if you might tell our listeners just a little bit about who you are and how it is that you came to this particular project. Uh, I'm an economics professor at Cornell University. That's in Ithaca, New York. Uh, I've been writing about how social interactions affect people's economic and and, and market behavior for many decades. Uh, the the idea that peer behavior was an especially important influence, I think, is an old idea. Uh, it's been familiar to me and, and most other social scientists for a long time. But the extent to which we have the power to do something about it, uh, I think, had never really dawned on me until I started working on this book. So why don't we d- define a few terms just for listeners who may not be familiar. You talk a lot about uh, social or behavioral contagion. Uh, as and, and think about it in a, in a number of different policy areas. Uh, tell folks what it is that you're talking about there. What is social contagion or behavioral contagion? The psychologists have a, a saying. They, they'll, they'll tell you it's the situation, not the person. And what they mean by that is if, if you see somebody do something and you're trying to explain why she did it, uh, your natural tendency is to look to traits of character, personality, what kind of person would do such a thing. No, they say that's not the right way to think about it. Uh, much more powerful as an explanation is to examine the social circumstances that surrounded her when she decided what to do. So, for example, if you're, if you're worried your teenage daughter will become a smoker, uh, it doesn't really tell you much to know that she's a science fiction buff or that she likes sports or that she was good in math. None of, none of that matters, really. What you really need to know if you want to assess the risk of her becoming a smoker is what what percentage of her close friends smoke. If that's a, a large number, then she's very much at risk. If very few of them smoke, then she's probably not going to smoke either. So the the claim and using that particular example is not that the individual has no power, has no free will, but that those social circumstances shape and constrain behavior in ways that I think it's fair to say you would argue we just as citizens don't appreciate, but more importantly, public policymakers don't always appreciate. Is that right? Right. The the social environment does influence us. I don't think anybody disputes that. Uh, whether it should influence, <clears throat> excuse me, whether it should influence us or not is an interesting question. Uh, generally, the term peer pressure has a very negative connotation in our 
environment, and I was very reluctant to see it used in any of the marketing or title or subtitle uh, of, of the book. But when my editor proposed uh, the subtitle, Putting Peer Pressure to Work, that had a kind of a man bites dog feel to it, to my ear. I said, yeah, let's go with that. Uh, and it, it, it just stands to reason that if we know the peer environment affects us, whether it should or not, uh, that if it affects us for good, we'd like to see one kind of peer environment. Uh, in, in that case, if it affects us for ill, we'd like to see that those kinds of peer environments diminished. And then the question is, is there anything we might do to alter the peer environment? And another true statement, but one that's, I think, less widely noticed than the, the claim that the environment influences us, is that the environment itself is a consequence in the aggregate of the choices we make. So the smoking rate, where did that come from? That's just the sum total of all our individual decisions about whether to smoke. But when we think about whether to smoke, uh, you'll rarely meet anybody who said, oh, I shouldn't do that because if I do, I'll make others more likely to smoke. Our own effect is so small that we just uh, rationally ignore it but it would be better if we didn't ignore it. Uh, and, and then the question is, is there anything policymakers or others could do, anything that wouldn't be too invasive and objectionable in its own right, that would encourage us to act as if we cared about the effect of our choices on the social environment? And it turns out that, as in the smoking case, there, there are lots of easy steps we could take that would have that effect. So let's dig into that just a little bit. So we've seen some some rather dramatic declines in smoking rates uh, concentrated among particular groups, it's worth pointing, but we've seen some some radical declines in smoking. To your mind, how do we understand that? What happened? And how can we trace those effects in a satisfactory kind of way? Okay, I think the the first meaningful steps, we, we had the Surgeon General's report published in the mid 60s. I think people knew that smoking wasn't very good for you even before that, but that put a, a sort of official stamp on that knowledge. But the, the first real steps to discourage people from smoking came in the mid-80s when taxes went up significantly on cigarettes. Many jurisdictions started to ban smoking in restaurants, bars, and other buildings. Uh, uh, increasingly, we see jurisdictions banning smoking even in public spaces. So it got more expensive to smoke and it got less convenient to smoke. Uh, what we know, though, is that by themselves, steps like that would not have had nearly the impact we've seen on smoking rates. Uh, it's, it's about 14% of American adults smoking now. It was uh, not very long ago, more than 60%. Uh, we know that nicotine is one of the very most addictive substances that exists out there. And increases in the price of cigarettes and, and slight increases in the inconvenience uh, of smoking are just not enough to cause smoking declines of that magnitude. What had to have happened is that some people didn't start smoking because it was more expensive. Uh, that would be primarily young people who have smaller budgets. And a few people who are convenience-focused uh, probably would have been discouraged too. 
the fact that fewer people started smoking meant that more peer groups had lower smoking rates. That meant others didn't start. And if you don't invoke that kind of contagion process, you just don't get to the, the numerical reductions that we've actually seen. It was really a combination of that uh, set of initial pushes towards making it more difficult to smoke, but uh, then the, the process taking on a life of its own as, as, as contagion spread throughout the population. So, but we haven't we haven't seen declines quite as dramatic, uh, particularly among low income populations. Um, is there anything sort of in your mind that that policy can do to what sort of of, of recreate that kind of contagion in that particular group? Well, we know uh, that the effects that matter most in terms of your own behavior are what people like you are doing, people who are most like you. And, and so it's not uh, a big surprise that we would see variation across groups. Uh, contagion is very hard to predict. Uh, a virus can spread very rapidly in some cases. It can, it can die out quickly in others. Uh, what we know is that if you have influential people in a group uh, who are taking a stand one way or another against uh, a practice or for it, uh, that can have an enormous impact. Uh, studies of bullying, for example, have shown that if you can study the social networks in a school and identify the people who are most central in those net networks, if those people will speak up against bullying, it has an enormous effect compared to if anyone else does. And so I, I think now we see that if an actor is photographed in public smoking a cigarette, that's a negative career impact on him or her. Uh, it used to be a positive impact. People uh, were quite happy to be photographed smoking. Uh, and so I think we do need to look for uh, influential peer role models to, to push further when we see a group that's like, so, I mean, as you well know, there are, there are sort of, of, of libertarian identified objections to, to government policy uh, being turned toward these efforts to alter individual and then group behavior. Those are, I think, playing out in some ways currently around notions of soda taxes. Uh, and you devote some, some effort uh, toward the end of the book in laying out a defense of the soda tax, perhaps for those who might be dubious about it. Can you, can you walk us through that argument? Why, why should we, in fact, support the notion of soda taxes? So to, to start with, I would describe myself uh, as akin to a John Stuart Mill libertarian. I don't think the government should tell you what to do unless it's to prevent you from causing harm to others. That's a more complicated uh, proposition than I think it, it was seen as being in Mill's time, because when you talk about harming others, there's the question uh, of whether what you do in your current self, uh, if that causes harm to a, a future version of yourself, is the future version of yourself an other? Uh, uh, there, there's good evidence to, to believe that your future self isn't uh, very well represented when your current self is deciding what to do about things. So set, set that to one side. Uh, 
if what you do harms others, then that seems like a perfectly legitimate rationale for telling you that you shouldn't do it. If the harm to others is bigger in particular than the the benefit you get from doing whatever it is you're doing, then there's really no reason that society should endorse continuing to let you do what you do. So in the case of, of sugar soft drinks, yeah, you, you, you can assert a right. I, I should have the right to drink whatever things I want. If I drink 32 ounce sodas uh, uh, laced with sugar, that's my right to do that. But what we know is that the, the habits of consumption of all people and in, mo- in, in, in particular children are very heavily influenced by what their peers do. And if it's the custom in a peer group for kids to drink 32-ounce sodas, your kids are likely to drink 32-ounce sodas too. And we've seen a, a, an explosive rise in the obesity rate in the United States, not just among adults, but also among kids. And no parent wants his or her kids to grow up to be uh, uh, grossly overweight or obese to suffer from type 2 diabetes to have his, his toes and feet amputated. Nobody wants that. Uh, and if you're a parent and you want to raise your kids to be healthy, you're much more likely to succeed in that goal if all the kids that your your sons and daughters hang around with are not drinking 32-ounce sodas. And so the, the most reasonable response to that concern is to make drinking 32-ounce sodas less attractive. How can you do that? Well, the simplest way is just to tax them heavily. That's what we did in the case of smoking, and it got the ball rolling there. Uh, if you really want to drink a 32-ounce highly sugared soda, go ahead and do it. But since you're causing harm to others, why not uh, pay a price to compensate for the harm you cause? Uh, the the added advantage of that approach is that if you pay a tax to drink your uh, favored type of drink uh, that causes harm to others, then the government raises revenue, which it can then use to reduce taxes on other activities that we now tax that not only don't cause harm to others, they're actually quite beneficial to them. So take the payroll tax, for example. Why should we tax payrolls that discourages firms from hiring workers? If we taxed sugared soft drinks, we could reduce the payroll tax. Why wouldn't that be a good thing to do? We'd limit harm, which is good in its own right, but we'd also uh, be able to reduce taxes on useful activities, which would, again, be a useful thing to do. Although, of course, the more successful those taxes become, the less revenue ultimately they will generate, right? Uh, But that would be a good thing uh, in the end. Um, So let's, let's... Uh, uh, I want to talk about one more example and then and then talk about ways in which we might apply this in the future to uh, other problems. But one of the things that is that is vexed any number of, of social scientists is trying to make sense of the the radical change in widespread support for uh, same sex marriage and the the speed with which uh, not only public opinion has changed but but the 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 law has changed in the whole range of policies uh, in a whole range of different places um, can you what what can you offer to that story that maybe makes that less perplexing 
than I think it has been for a lot of people who have I have read writing about this and trying to make sense of what happened. Yeah, it really was a, a dramatic shift that occurred in, in a very short period of time. Uh, historically speaking, in in the late '80s, there were only, there was only one person in ten who thought it was okay to allow same-sex marriage. Uh, in the wake of the Supreme Court's decision to to make it legal in every state in in 2015, now that number is around 70. percent uh, You don't see attitudes on such a socially charged issue change that fast very often. And when they do change, uh, looking back in hindsight, it's often possible to piece together an explanation based on contagion. Uh, you know the the world's complicated. Uh, we don't we don't any of us have uh, anywhere near the information we would need to know to have uh, well formed opinions about most issues. And so, in in the majority of cases, what we think depends very heavily on what others around us think. Uh, that's not irrational. That's 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 the, probably the best option we have in a complicated world. And if you were in the 80s and you saw 90% of the country all around you saying confidently that same-sex marriage was not to be permitted, uh, it wouldn't be mysterious if you just adopted that as your view too. But that kind of support for a view is very fragile. Uh, Once it begins to change, then there might have been people who would be willing to speak publicly uh, and endorse the idea of same-sex marriage if enough others did so, but there weren't quite enough others. Uh, then something happens, maybe a, a prominent person comes out publicly, uh, a, a politician has a son or daughter who, who comes out publicly, and there are then statements about uh, the, the pain and suffering that, that people suffer for no apparent uh, good purpose. And so a few people change their minds and they begin speaking out too. And then suddenly you've got a prairie fire and it happened just uh, almost overnight. You, you have to think back to 2008 when the California uh, referendum was being debated. They, they had a state referendum about whether to permit same-sex marriage. Uh, Barack Obama opposed it publicly. Hillary Clinton did too. Uh, now we've got 70% of, of the people saying, why not? It, it's another way in which the the the, the sort of the, the feedback effect here that you talk about in a number of ways sort of plays out and you get this almost what but sort of snowball effect, right? So you get Yes, it, it, it's a simple example of one of these now familiar positive feedback processes. Each step affects the next step, which affects the one after that, and they snowball. Is can do you have why did this work for gay marriage and not for other issues, right? There's a whole host of, of issues in which we can still see sort of stubborn divides uh, uh, among individuals and perhaps between parties. Is there something you think particular about the same-sex marriage case that made it more susceptible to this sort of radical acceleration of change? You know, there are uh, different triggers in different cases. So if you think about the Me Too movement, uh, that was launched by a tweet in 2017. The tweet went viral. It was accompanied by the hashtag Me Too uh, moniker, and uh, people could find uh, tweets that were related to that issue quite easily because of the hashtag. Uh, the same attempt had been launched 
uh, fully 10 years earlier, uh, an attempt to launch a B2 movement, it fizzled out quickly because there wasn't that convenient way for people to get in contact with others who, who shared the same view. So, so in each case, it's different. Uh, and, and whether it happens uh, is hard to predict. When it happens is harder still. Uh, you, you talk about the fall of the Soviet bloc countries in the late 80s, uh, apart from a few cranks who had predicted that to happen every year for many years, uh, no pundits saw Nobody that coming. Nobody saw it coming. Yeah, it was just out of the blue. And it may have been some small change. Maybe people who were afraid to speak out against a regime suddenly had reason to think it was less dangerous than before. Uh, they saw some people getting away with it. Uh, or maybe there was a new outrage that pushed people over the top and, and made them willing to court the danger of speaking out. But uh, as more spoke out, the thresholds for others were, were crossed and they spoke out too. And, and within 18 months, all those governments were down. Uh, it could have easily happened differently. Uh, we, we've seen lots of uh, contagions like that start and then fizzle. So it's, it's hard to predict. But again, the, the theme of the book is that since these influences are so important on us for good and ill, why not try to harness them to make better lives for ourselves? Uh, no parent wants his kid to grow up to be a smoker. Uh, I don't think there's anybody even including most smokers who would regret the fact that the smoking rate is now under 14%, not 60% as it used to be. Uh, every parent now has a much easier time raising kids to be non-smokers. What's not to like about that? And that's the kind of change that we could engineer if we were uh, uh, thoughtful about it in, in a host of other domains. Most well, important- That's where I want to go next. I want to talk really about climate is the, change. Is the, is the one that we're thinking. So how how might that um, how might that play out if we talk about climate change and you think about sort of the lessons from these other cases and the lessons from your book? What could government do to mitigate at least the worst effects of climate change? The the people who have studied this issue tell us that uh, unless we invest massively in green energy infrastructure and adopt very stiff carbon fees, there's really no hope that we'll dodge the, the, the most calamitous effects of continued warming. That's just, uh, it's, it's, it's built into the system. It's, it's, it's got a lot of forward momentum. Mm -hmm. uh, and it sounds very daunting to come up with a couple of trillion dollars a year to make the necessary investments. And nobody likes the idea of stiff carbon fees, of course. What I've tried to show in the book is that neither one of those steps, the, 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 the revenue measures needed to raise the money to pay for the investments and the need to deal with stiff carbon fees, neither of those steps would demand really any painful sacrifices from anyone. I don't think that's a widely known uh, fact about the world, uh, but it's, it's a simple claim. It follows logically from premises uh, that no serious behavioral scientist would question. Uh, we, we spend our money in ways that are heavily influenced by others. And as a result, a lot of the money we spend ends up being pure waste. We know, for example, that if every mansion were to get twice as big suddenly, none of the people who live in those mansions would be any happier than before. It would just raise the bar that defines how big a mansion people feel they need. 
if we could really uh, observe the correct uh, effect of a move like that, it would almost surely be that people would be less happy living in the bigger mansions because the bigger mansions are such, such a much uh, more difficult nuisance to take care of. So the money is there. Uh, if we tax the top earners, uh, the, the money that they would pay in would not compromise their ability to buy what they need. Certainly nobody even claims that. Uh, they're worried it would compromise their ability to buy life's special extras. But, but those are things like apartments at the penthouse level with sweeping views. There are only a limited supply of those special things. How do you get them? You have to outbid others like you who also want them. And when your taxes go up and their taxes go up too, your relative bidding power is completely unaffected by that. And so you'll be able to get the same penthouse apartment you hope to get after the tax increase as you could have bought before the tax increase. Meantime, those dollars can go to pay for the green energy investments that will save us from the worst effects of warming. It's the same with a carbon tax. Uh, it's political malpractice of the highest order that the, the leaders who have proposed carbon taxes did not explain carefully to the public that they would be made uh, what's called revenue neutral. We would collect all the revenue from the carbon tax, most of which would come from high income consumers since they use a disproportionate share of all en energy. The, the worldwide share of the top 10% of the income distribution is almost 50% of energy consumed. So they'd be paying in most of the revenue from the carbon tax. If low and middle income families got monthly rebate checks uh, where that revenue was divided up and sent back to them, uh, as many as 90% of voters would be getting checks each month, each month bigger than the amounts they'd paid in in carbon taxes. And so what would be not to like? What how, how, how smart of a political genius would you have to be in order to persuade voters to back a plan like that? Uh, that the plan has not been presented in that way. Uh, Tom Steyer or Michael Bloomberg could finance an ad campaign that would explain clearly to voters why that would be in their interest to, to adopt a policy like that. And we could elect politicians who would enact it. Uh, so these steps we could take, they wouldn't be burdensome. The, the rich people who would be net payers would get most of the benefits from cleaning up the environment. So they'd come out ahead on balance, too. So there, there really is not a hard decision to make if we really saw the full facts on the table. You are listening to the New Books Network. I am Stephen Pimpera, host of the Public Policy Channel, and we have been speaking today with Robert Frank, who is the author of Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work, new from Princeton University Press. Robert, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Stephen. Thanks so much for having me.